Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Hi, this is Raf Tibunara, real estate investor, mortgage banker, and founder of the Disruptors Network. And if you want to invest in your relationships, you should be listening to Build Your Network with my good friends, Travis Chappell and Eric Swazinski. If you're tired of the old way of networking, the business cards, the awkward conversations, and the aggressive pitches, but you know how crucial your network is to your success in life, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Build Your Network, the only top-rated show committed to helping you master content networking, foster real relationships, increase your authority, and build the network of your dreams. Listen in on conversations with world-class entrepreneurs, authors, thought leaders, and more as we deconstruct their best strategies for your success. So get ready to burn your business cards, ditch the name tag, and discover the new way to network with your host, Travis Chappell. All right, Ralph, thanks so much for joining me here on the Build Your Network podcast. Glad to get to sit down with you. Sounds good. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited to get to talk with you a little bit today. And before we get into all the amazing stuff you're doing, let's go back to just childhood, Ralph. So tell me a little bit about maybe middle school. Uh, what was your what was your personality like? What was kind of your your surroundings? And where were you headed at that time? It's funny because um, I'm actually in the process of trying to write a book. So I actually went through a lot of this stuff today. So I think I probably have a better crafted story than I usually do about it. But I grew up in, I'm from New York my whole life. I grew up in Brooklyn. And, uh, you know, I grew up in a really, like, uh, close-knit Italian neighborhood. It was really pretty much mostly Italian. It was called Dyker Heights in Brooklyn. You know, my father was a teacher. My mother was an educator. Uh, my father pretty much worked three or four jobs to kind of keep us going. We lived in a multifamily house, so there was always kind of interesting people around that. And my, my childhood was, was, was pretty charmed. Uh, it was a small neighborhood that I was very well liked in. I played sports. It was really great. And then when I was about 14 years old, my parents moved us to a different part of New York City. And I was really shy by nature. So taking me out of my environment into this new environment was almost like a death sentence for me. I just wasn't really prepared for it. Uh, you know, I, I call it almost like the gro- a growth trap. Like I, I was advancing in life almost automatically and have to work at it. And then I got put in this new environment where I had to almost work towards fitting in again. And I didn't know how to do it. I was like a fish out of water. So it really was really a first challenge I faced, but pretty much from high school through college, I faced this, that it, it was like a whole new me that I didn't necessarily understand. It took me kind of a long way to break out of it, but you know, that was the beginnings of my upbringing and, and kind of understanding more about it now, um, the challenges I faced. What was your family like? I mean, were they were they entrepreneurial at all or was it something where? Uh, uh, so that's it's a good question. You know, it's funny, I've never been asked that before, but my dad was a teacher and then a principal and then a professor at some point, but he always had a side business. So yes, in a way he was entrepreneurial. He always tutored. He always had an after school business. So he kind of was in that way. He always hustled to make more money. Hmm. So from, from that standpoint, I learned a lot 
I learned more than anything from watching his work ethic. I didn't realize it at the time, but he really instilled that in me just by osmosis for me seeing him do it every single day. So yeah, he was entrepreneurial in some ways for that reason. At the same time, he was somebody who worked at the same job for 30 years. So when I first got into the workforce, I thought that was the norm. It's like, you go work for a company, you stay there for your whole entire life. This is how it was. And that kind of led me into trouble at some point because I had this kind of skewed view of what reality was, what that was. But yeah, he was kind of entrepreneurial. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always curious about that because I think there's so much that factors in that we don't even realize, you know, like whether, whether our parents had a, you know, scarcity mindset about money, whether it was something where they were, they were constantly trying to make extra money on the side, you know, whether they pushed you to be the company man, you know, and and a lot of that is generational. Like the idea of being at a company for 30 plus years was a lot more common back a few decades than it is now. Now even companies aren't looking at employees as being, you know, a lifelong, well, sure. lifelong asset. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think everybody's philosophies changed. And, but I started working in um, mortgage banking first in 2001. And I got, I went to work for a, a newly public company and I thought that was it for me. I thought, hey, this is it. Like I could just advance in my company. I don't have to know anybody outside of this company. This is going to be great. And the, I stayed there until the market crashed in 2008. And it was a harsh reality for me because not only did I lose everything, but I lost my whole entire network because I didn't really have a network. It was all really inside this company and everybody lost their jobs and nobody could help each other. So it was, it became a start over for me and really yeah. a life lesson when I looked back at it, but my naivety to, to having to build your network outside of your, your company or your, your immediate sphere because of that. What was really that was the case because I was used to what I was seeing. Like this is it. You retire at the same company, you'll get a pension or four hundred one k, and this, this, so on and so on. But that wasn't really reality, and it was a good thing now, but then it was hard. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine being in the mortgage industry during that time period. It's it's literally there's no worse timing to to be in a, in a situation like that, and it's it's shocking to me, you know, now knowing what you do because you're working still in the real estate world and and you'd think i, I mean <laughs> you think that would scare you off from ever touching that world again so first of all i mean how did you recover from that loss because that knocks you to literally ground zero and then how do you start rebuilding that how do you decide to to keep in the real estate space you know it kind of it happened overnight like i i can so my i can remember because my company was on wall street and i was living on wall street so i kind of was walk i never forget i was walking up the block to my office and i got a, a call or an email at the time that said hey they just got rid of uh this this and this product which was kind of like everything we were selling at the time and i was like that can't be that's got to be fake and sure enough by the time i got to the office they were like yeah everything is gone so i think i went back home that day and i was just watching the market crash on tv these are vivid memories right so you know, within six months, it kind of all unraveled, including my finances. You know, I went from that penthouse on Wall Street to a small apartment and a side house in a suburb in a, in a borough of New York City. And really everything was gone, the properties and everything and the money. I'd, I'd gone through my 401k. And when I finally, because I kind of froze at first because I didn't know what to do. Like I was like, I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. I was just like, looking for help and there was really no help to be found. So finally, after like six or eight months, I was like, I just got to get back to my foundation of how I started. So I'm going to go back to selling. At that point, I, I was running a division. I was a vice president at Deutsche Bank at the time. Deutsche Bank had acquired us. I was a vice president at Deutsche Bank, and they were like, we're not doing your mortgages anymore. And then it kind of unraveled. So I was like, I'm going to go back to my foundation. I'm going to go back to being a loan officer. I'm going to go back to selling loans again. But there weren't really many banks hiring, and there weren't many, many products. So I managed to get myself a job. I had one company that was trying to figure it out. And I was working like 12, 15 hours a day to make mm. a third of the money I was making before. But I really had no choice. And to be totally honest with you, Eric, a lot of it was pride. Like I didn't want to admit that I messed up as bad as I messed up, that I had complete blinders on it. I didn't see it coming. So I was like, I'm going to stay in this industry and I'm going to figure it out. And I dug out of the debt. And you know, the problem was too, was not only did I lose all the money, but I had, I had acquired all this debt because every single money I was making, every single year I was making more money. And I was just like, oh, this will continue forever. Like complete blinders, right? right? So now I'm starting over with all this debt, with less income and it took me probably two or three years just to dig out of it to get back to normal. And then I really started to rebuild, rebuild my life, my career. But uh, it probably took about two or three years just to dig out of the debt and get my income back to close to normal levels where it was before. And I was just became, I went back to my roots. I just became a salesperson again. I started selling loans. I was able to make a living. And that turned into me starting my own group and my own division again. And that division turned into a bigger thing and then my own company. But so it was a long road. It was a long, painful road. 
Right. Right. Yeah. No, that's a, a definitely sounds like the case. And, and was there, was there a, a second, you know, cause I, cause I have to imagine there had to be some moment where you thought like, should I just switch industries and go somewhere safer, you know, uh, or was it a situation where it kind of made you realize like nothing is safe. I just got to work to climb as fast as I can to get back to where I was. This kind of goes back to kind of college and how I got into the business. I graduated in college with a finance degree, but I didn't, I wasn't good in school. It wasn't really something um, that I excelled at. So I got a job in sales and mortgages and I excelled really quickly. So when it crashed, part of my brain at the time, because I didn't have, I was always an entrepreneur in spirit, but I didn't really have confidence in it yet. Right. So part of my brain was like, this is the only thing I'm good at. What am I going to do? I was never good at anything like this before. I was, I did really well here. Like I made a lot of money. I advanced really quickly. Like, I don't want to start over. Like I'm, and and in truth, like I think back on it now, is I think I could have been good at anything with the same work ethic and the same principles. Yeah. But at the time, I didn't have the confidence to know that. So I think staying where in something as dark as it was, staying in something that I was comfortable in, um, and I knew I could succeed, and if I put the work in again, probably was a smart thing. But it was by accident. It was really more out of being naive to who I could really be more than. A strategic move. Yeah, no, definitely. So moving back in, building up the, the real estate portfolio, I mean, what what kind of started you on your own? Like, like what was that first investment where you said, like, this is mine, this is not under the roof of some other company, this is relying purely on me as much as it can. Obviously, there's always external factors, but but where it was yours. Um, so I started, I bought my first property at I believe I was 23 and maybe 22 mm-hmm. and um, I bought a multifamily the first and that's really common in the New York area. And I bought a multifamily and that was my first investment, my first smart investment, um, which I sold pretty quickly and made money on the market was kind of like it is now, which is a little bit where it was it, the values were going up very quickly. So I sold it. And then um, I invested in a few more properties, a few that were in Florida, which ended up being a death sentence in 2008. Cause that was one of the hardest hates that hit states, but it, it worked for a while. And that was my initial portfolio. And truth be told, some of those properties I still have mm. up to this day, wow. which is interesting. But, you know, and then the market crashed and, you know, I, I was on a freeze for, for probably four or five years before I was able to stop buying again. And then I kind of went back to the same methods that, that I had known, which was residential, which was multifamily, which was long-term income, right? Like I, I never have really been much of a, a flipper, even though in my my early career, I was doing it because it was easy and that was just, there was margins that you could do it at. And so I, I was always really more of a long-term person. And I think what 2008 taught me more than anything is that if you have staying power in real estate, whereas you can stay in a property long-term, that the values will always come back. Like mm-hmm. no matter how hard, the, how hard the market gets hit, if you're able to just stay in, and Florida was a good example of that for me. I stayed and then the values eventually came back and it made sense that I could make up for a lot of mistakes I may make along the way. But if I bought a property and my strategy was flip for a certain margin, there was a lot more room for error. So I, so that was, has always been a long-term consistent strategy. We buy properties, stay in them, stay in them long-term. And even now, now I think for the most part nationwide, there's not really a lot of margin in flipping, depending on how, how you buy the properties, because properties are moving so fast and such an inventory shortage. So it's hard to really find something like I can buy this for 300 and sell for 500. The amount of risk you think you have to take a flip a property right now, I don't see the value in it. I don't want to have yeah. to flip a property to make forty or $50,000 over six months. I just don't think that makes sense. I think that the margins have to be larger than that. So I'm still in the, in the long-term game. The biggest difference in my portfolio now than it was then or as I've grown was it's kind of split. It's some 50% long-term rentals, 50% short-term rentals. So if there's any change in strategy or what I've done differently over the last you know few years and then over time was change my strategy, tweak my strategy that way where I'm more open to the short-term rental stuff because it's, it's, it's more profitable. It's a lot more to manage, but it's more profitable. Yeah. I, I, I'm curious because like real estate is something, I mean, obviously that's uh, everybody that comes on, on the show, you know, it seems like they at least dabble in it. You know what I mean? Like it seems like real estate, you know, that's, that's where people like to go as opposed to the stock market or something that's super, yeah. super volatile. I'm kind of curious though. So like you talked about the kind of dangers of flipping, uh, but that tends to be where I think most people start. I, I think, cause it is like a lower investment. Like it's most people can't go out and buy a, a condo or an apartment, you know, like right out, yeah. right out of the gate. So do you discourage people from starting there? And if so, where would you encourage people start in real estate? If they, if they're stretching to make this happen and this is their first investment, where should they start? I just, you know, I think even in property flipping, even for me, and I'm in the business 20 years and I've been buying properties for, let's say, 18. 
I, you know, I'm not on the street every single day searching for properties that are flippable, right? So, and there's guys that are out there that are doing, they're buying yeah. foreclosures, they understand construction, they understand exactly what's going to go into it. I think for even my purposes, because I'm not super handy and, and I, I'm a little bit of a disadvantage buying in that market, right? And so I think for a newbie, you're, you're, at, you're at a big disadvantage because, you know, if there's a property to be bought, you, you could believe right now, especially with inventory shortage, there's a hundred wolves looking to buy that property, right? So I think you're right. at a disadvantage. So I think the safest place to, to buy is, and not every area has multifamilies, but I think the safest area to start in always is a property you can live in and rent at the same time. Mm. And, you know, Airbnb and VRBO made that more possible, even if it's not a multifamily, because you could definitely find a, a, a property that you can rent rooms possibly or, or a portion of your house. So that's the safest place to start, in my opinion. Always buy a property that you can live in and rent at the same time. So you can lower your risk because somebody's helping you pay the mortgage. Maybe you're living for free at that point or close to free. And then that property can always become a long-term investment. I want to move on to my forever home. I want to buy a primary residence where I don't rent anymore, but I'm going to keep this property because it's generating income at this point now. I think that's the safest way to start and to really secure yourself long-term. I, I love that strategy best. Yeah. So uh, tell me about Airbnb because uh, I mean, you were Airbnb relatively new um, you were in the real estate game long before that. When Airbnb first, when you first became aware of it, were you skeptical of that kind of model or was it something where it was like, oh, this is awesome. Like this is another income stream. Like what was your initial reaction and when did you decide to finally take the plunge into that? Yeah, no, I was definitely skeptical. And, and I think like most things, I was more skeptical because I didn't understand it mm. more than anything. Like, you know, I, and when I started to dive into it, I was like, all right, I see how this can make sense. So I, I didn't probably dive in until COVID happened, to be honest with you. Over the really? last four months, really, like, when I really dove in. And when it, when, when it first happened, that was the hardest hit market because it, yeah. most people couldn't Airbnb at first. So then I started to look at it and I'm like, you know, the good thing about Airbnb is there's so many websites out there that give you stats. Like AirDNA is a site that I use. If you go to AirDNA, you put the zip code in, it'll tell you the exact houses that are renting on Airbnb, what they're renting for in the percentage of the year they're, 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 they're rented for. So when I started to look at that, I'm like, uh, well, this is a lot of information walking into a property. This makes it a lot easier. Like if I walk in the zip code, I, and there's a lot of things that go along with it. You have to look at the city rules. You, you, know, you have to make sure you can Airbnb. Do you need a permit? Do you not need a permit? Is it frowned upon? And then I would look at the stats and I was like, I can really make a, a much higher cap rate on my money. It's more to manage, but I can make a much higher cap rate on my money if I short-term rental it because especially now, people, you know, everything became staycations and everything became, I can't travel out of the country, travel out of the country, so where can I actually travel to? And the dollar amount you're getting per night, even most of these properties, renting them 50% of the time, you're making more than you make on a long-term rental. So I started to look at it like that and I have help. So... I will say this, they're much harder to manage than a regular property long-term is, is to manage because it's like running a hotel. People are going to complain about the bed sheets, about the everything, you know, from the second, the pots in the house. They're going to complain about everything, but you get a premium for your money because of that. So I started, I was like, I have to at least, I don't want to be completely leveraged in it, but I have to at least look at this as, so I'm spread out and diversified. So it makes sense for me. Um, so if one market starts to slow down a little bit, I have this. And if Airbnb ever starts to slow down, the good thing about it is that it's always turnkey and go back to a long-term investment. I'm not handicapped where I have a long-term lease and I can't get that person out of the house. So that was part of why I looked at it too, because half of the nightmares you hear about, and I didn't have too much difficulty with getting people to pay during this, but a lot of the nightmares you hear is landlords who have tenants who haven't paid in a year or six months, eight months, and they can't get them out. So more and more as I looked at properties, I was like, this makes a lot of sense now because I'm not locking myself in long-term to a lease. People are looking for these places to stay. These daily rentals make a lot of sense. So then it was a matter of where I was going to buy, but that's how I made sense of it. Yeah. And, and you have Airbnb chasing down a payment, you know, versus, yes. versus yeah, yeah, you. Right. Yeah. Yes, and, and especially depending on the area you're in, you know, like I, I know a guy who does a lot of Airbnb in California and uh, I know a lot of guys that do real estate in California because that's where I'm from. Yeah. And all, all of them talk about that same thing is like the rules are so in favor of tenants that, you know, to try to evict anybody in an area like that is, is really, really difficult. So yeah, the, the Airbnb model makes more sense because they're the ones handling that, that transaction. Sure. Yeah. And, and listen, and people just like your Uber rating and everything like that, if, if you can really pre-approve the people who are, who are going to rent from you. So you can go look at their approval rating. You can go look if they're rated. And I look at that stuff. Like we have an age requirement. I'll go look at the property and say, mm. this person's got two reviews. They were good. 
you set the rules the right way, but they're just as scared as you are of getting a bad review. Yeah. You know, that, so that helps too. Like it keeps, it keeps you both accountable. I have to be attentive to you because I don't want you to give me a bad review that my house has to look right. And you have to be serviced the right way. And you have to keep my house in good order. So you don't get a bad review. So it really keeps us both accountable too, which is, it's like almost an unsaid contract. Like we have a contract, like look, we're going to do the right thing by each other. So, so that I like that part of it a lot too. Yeah, no, Absolutely. You mentioned how much work Airbnb is, and I think that's one of the things that most people are panicked about uh, when when thinking about jumping into this is is how much work is it? I I mentioned you know I'm I'm nowhere near to the point where I think I, I want to pick up like a rental property, but I you know I've talked to my wife about it just in passing, like hey this is something to think about, and that's her instant thing is like man it's so much work it, it's going to be a pain, especially Airbnb you know she's like I don't want to be you know running towels to somebody you know yeah. and all all this kind of stuff. So so at what point? when someone's diving into the Airbnb world, do you recommend them outsourcing the management side of it? Or, or maybe not even just Airbnb, any kind of rental property. How soon should you be outsourcing that versus you putting in the work and just you know taking those hits for the first, first little bit? Yeah, I think twofold to that question. So I'll give you the first answer first and then I'll tell you what, how Airbnb is easier to manage if you do outsource a lot of things. From my point of view, and again, I have enough properties where I have a decent amount of help at this point, but when it got to the point where I had to say, hey, it, me running to a house to, to get a locksmith there, all the stuff. My time is too valuable to do that. Like, what am I worth per hour? Mm-hmm. Like, what is it? What is money worth per hour every single day? And if I have to spend three hours on this property, is it really worth it for me to manage it? Or is it worth yeah. for me to give up 15% or 10% for someone to manage it, right? So I think you have to look at it that way first. Like, if I have a job and it's not on my lunch break or whatever it is, or I'm self-employed or an entrepreneur, I can't manage a property for hours because it's taking too much money away from what I'm making. So it kind of, so I think you have to look at personally, look at it that way first, but right. Airbnb, it's, it's a little bit easier to outsource and I'll explain why. So first of all, for cleaning, you charge a cleaning fee, the, per, the, the customer pays the cleaning fee, and then you use that money to pay your cleaner. So it's not, it's not costing you anything. You're, you're, it's a pass through cost. Most uh, there's a, in every area you can almost find a clean a, a cleaning company that'll connect to your calendar on Airbnb or VRBO mm. and like a whole tap. They get notified like you get notified when somebody's checking in and checking out, and they go clean. And most of the cleaning services that we use that we require, and sometimes it takes some time going through the cleaning services. We want pictures every time they check out. We want them to show us the house. They have to go through the inventory to make sure nothing is missing. So we kind of outsource a lot of that stuff to them, even if it costs me a little bit extra money. Again, it's a pass-through cost to the customer at that point that they're right. aware of up front. So that takes a little bit of the work away from it. When they check in, you're still going to get a lot of questions. But again, technology makes this stuff a lot easier. A lot of the questions are because the people are checking in the way off. Most of them coming over over message through, through Airbnb or text message. And you can answer back and forth as far as, what they need and what they're, they're going to get. But you're going to get a lot of questions when that happens. And again, being accountable to it, your response rate is affected by it. Like if you don't respond quickly, your, your response rate on the page goes down, down, down. The lower your response rate goes, the less people are going to rent from you. So you, it is something that's important you respond quick. So that's, that is the tough part of it. I found that you can find handymen almost anywhere that are reasonable. And again, you have to keep them accountable and go through them, but not to like go to Facebook marketplace. You can find affordable repair services. And for me, I can't screw in a light bulb. So I need that kind of help. Yeah, right. Uh, so I, you know, me and my partners have found people almost everywhere. Cause I have a lot of properties out of state that aren't where I live. So I've found people everywhere that could help us manage that portion of it, you know, more and that's, but so I outsource, to be totally honest with you, I outsource most of it at this point, but it's worked into my cost. Like I have sure. to get $475 a night because 20% of that cost is going towards maintenance and the rest of it is. If I can't get in this area, that in this area based off of my mortgages, then the property doesn't make sense. So I look at it on, 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 as soon as I go into it, like I know that it's going to cost me this much to maintain the property. Do I still make enough profit on this property to make sense out of it? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no. And, and so it sounds like for someone starting out, you're probably going to have to have just that grit and go for it at the beginning until it makes sense to kind of yeah, make those, sure, those margins yes. work. Do you recommend, so, you know, I, again, I know a guy that does a lot with Airbnb and, uh, and, and I'm really curious about this perspective as well. You own a lot of these properties, uh, or I'm assuming all of them at this point. For for a lot of people, the gateway to Airbnb, the conversation of arbitrage comes up a lot. Do you do you discourage people from doing this? <laughs> from your facial expression, it sounds like you might. Uh, or is that a good way to get in if you don't have the money to to buy a property outright? So it, this is why it's tough. I don't just it, listen. If you feel like that you're in a situation you can get away with it, it's not a terrible way to make a living, but. This is where the problems come in. And I'll tell you the problems. Like this is like daily stuff. 
I had an Airbnb property in Jersey City, New Jersey, which is kind of a metropolitan area. A lot of people in. They allow they allow Airbnb. I have a permit for it. The neighbor just doesn't like Airbnb. We had a, a renter that was in there that was smoking weed outside. Mm. They were playing loud music. She called every single person in the world she could call. The fire inspector, the the call, everything. And I had to go through the process. And we were within our rights, but through the process of explaining what happened and showing them the permits. But the first thing that happened is the fire inspector showed up and said, who lives here and who's living here? So if you don't have the, if you can get permits to do it, then great. But a lot of times you get the permit, if the city requires a permit, you have to be the owner of the property. So it becomes a little bit more difficult to do that, right? So these are the little, like, and like today, um, I just got a phone call. My, my property manager came to me, just got a phone call because one of the, the people who was staying there, we threw the garbage in the neighbor's garbage. So instead of just calling us, they called the police, whatever reason, I don't know. So these are little things that happen, but you have to be on top of it. You know, you really have to be on top of it. Like I was just trying to get an Airbnb property in, in Miami, which we ended up doing. But when I was first looking in the buildings, basically what the realtors were telling us was like, you're not really supposed to Airbnb here, but if you hire me, I'll meet people in the lobby. I'll give them the key and I'll take them upstairs. And I was just like, yeah, I don't want, I, I don't yeah. want to think about it. sketchy. Yeah, the first time somebody comes and they had a bad experience, and they want to make a problem. There's just too many variables, so it's just a risky proposition long term to do it that way. Is what I would say. If you can get away with it, great, but it's risky to do it long term because there's a lot of things that can go wrong. Gotcha, gotcha. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with. Indeed, if you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a, a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Well, I, I definitely want to pivot the conversation toward networking because this is obviously build your networks. So I want to talk yeah. a little bit about that. Do you believe that who you know or what you know is more important and why? It's a good question. So I think who you know is super important in general. You know, I want to be able to refer people around my life that I know will act like, will do business the way I do business no matter what field they're in. So it's 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 not only who you know, it's not just, hey, I have somebody that does it. It's actually re, you know, researching those sources or doing business with those sources. You can, you can comfortably refer business and get business referred back from that person, which is really what I use my network for. But I think it's super important. You know, when I'm going into a new market to buy a property or to do business or to open an office for my mortgage company, whatever it is, if I, I can skip a lot of mistakes by knowing somebody who's done it already. I mean, if you do anything in life, if you want to open a pizzeria, it seems like a great idea on paper. Go talk to somebody who owns a pizzeria and they'll tell you a hundred things that they hate about the business, right? <laughs> right. So I, I think that that's where your network, no matter how good you are at what you do, that's where your network is really important because Time is really the most important thing in life, I believe. And to know people who have spent time on things that you want to do that you haven't done yet or that can save you time in the things you're doing is the most important thing that you can really possibly have. So I think who you know is, is super important. 
Yeah, I, I love that you keep hitting the importance of time. And obviously with how many properties you're managing, time is probably a big, a big important piece of your, of your um, thought process. But it's something that I think so many people undervalue. You know, like people think about everything in terms of money. But, um, you know, I, I think about it. I remember two, it was probably two, three years ago now, I was pitching a production services to a lawyer. And, uh, and I was talking through it. I was like, okay, we'll edit this much. And they were like pushing, like, what if I learn how to do it? And I was just like, you're a lawyer, right? Like, how much do you make an hour? You know, like I didn't ask him straight up, but I just said, I know that you make a lot an hour. Even like a, a bad lawyer is making good money every hour. So it, it's just, and I was just like, it, tell me it's, it's not worth it for you to take an hour of what you could be making at your firm to be sitting there trying to figure out how to use GarageBand and download Adobe. You know, like it just doesn't make any sense. But same with a doc, like, why are you picking up your dry cleaning? You know what I mean? Like what, what is worth your time? And so I think that's really important. I hope people that are listening are getting that because that's so much of this conversation is like, yeah, is it, is it 10% of your cut? Sure. But it's also how much money could you be making investing that time? So, so many times where, you know, we're penny wise and dollar foolish, right? And that, and time is really the biggest thing people do. It, it's, it's our most expensive commodity that we, we don't realize, but that's the most important thing to me. Like I've tried to be better. Something that I've not been great over my life is, is, is scheduling. And, and I've gotten better over time and I've gotten more and more better, but I have my schedule down to a place now where if I can finish something early or do something quicker, I, I steal time so I can do something else that I like. Yeah. Like it's like, I just got 30 minutes. Like, what can I, like, I can I use that to be creative? Can I use that to be, to, to, to read whatever I can do? But like, I try to steal time all over the place. That's how important it is to me. Like I'm always trying to right. steal time and stuff. So yeah, I, I think if you could concentrate on one thing with everything you're doing, don't waste time on things that don't serve you in some way. And it doesn't have to be financially. It could be mentally. It could be spiritually. It could be anything. It could be physically. But like, I think that we have to concentrate on, on spending our time on things that really serve us and in the, in the, for the right purposes. Well, and that's where the scarcity mindset should come into play. You know what I mean? You can't get time back. You, you Like time is gone. And, and I think about that. I, I have a three-year-old and I'm always thinking about that. Like a lot of my decisions business-wise and other is like, how do I make the most of that time? Because she's not going to be three again. You know, like she's almost four. Like she's not going to be a, a, a toddler again. She's going to have school like in another year. You know, like there's that stuff's not coming back. Losing 10% here financially you know, when I can invest to, to have that time might be worthwhile. And I can always make more money. There's always ways to improve systems, make more money, but I, I got to value that time. It's, it's super, super valuable. I think um, for me too, and you hit on something really good there. My, my kids are seven and five now. Hmm. Children really made me realize that more than anything, you know, after my son was born first, I really locked in on it. I'm like, wow, time is going so fast. Like he was just a yeah. baby, He's five, four, six, seven. And I'm just like, I think that's when time became the most precious to me. I'm like, you know, I, I don't want to waste anything. Like I want to, I want to see them. And, and listen, I get up at 4.30 in the morning and half of the, the reason we get more, probably 90% of the reason we get getting at 4.30 is because it's time I get to spend with myself that doesn't impact anybody else's life, yeah. right? So I get two hours to myself every single day where I could just be by myself. I don't got to worry about anybody else. Everybody's home in bed. Everything is fine. My family's good. And I'm stealing time, right? I'm stealing time by myself. So when everybody, and, and I'm not stealing time away from them. So it's, it's really a big part of the reason I get up so early. Is I, I get up so early so I can steal a little time for myself without impacting them in a negative way. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'm curious about the, on the relationship side. I mean, you obviously mentioned that the, you know, being so important, who is somebody that has helped impact your, maybe your life or business and really, I mean, when you look at the trajectory of the last few years, you can say like, without that person, I'd be in a totally different spot. You know, that's a, that's a really good idea. And, you know, but the first thought always comes to mind is, is my dad, only because hmm. uh, a lot of the way I, I interact on a daily basis, even though he had a completely different job than me and completely different life, are be him. And, you know, he still gets up super early. He still exercises every single morning. He still has a routine every single day. And, you know, that was so ingrained in me that I do it every single day without even thinking about it, right? But I think also, to, to a second point of that, I have a leadership academy to disrupt this network. My goal with it was to take in younger people that didn't have access that I had and give them my access to help them mm -hmm. with their careers, whether it's real estate or mortgages or entrepreneurship. And we started this leadership academy and we've had about four or five, uh, we're up to like seven people actually that have come through at this point yet. And to see their lives changing from 
getting access from me and mentorship or whatever it is, I think it's impacted me more than anything. You know, mm-hmm. when they buy houses, it's better than when I buy a house. When they get themselves in the car, when they're able to kind of advance themselves. So I think mentoring people who really wanted it and really didn't have access to it has changed my life in ways that, that nothing else could have done. Yeah, that's awesome. And and how important do you think like mentorships or masterminds are for anybody that's pursuing, I mean, we'll keep it focused on real estate, but really just in general, I mean, anybody that's launched out into a business, how important are those relationships? It's the most important thing, in my opinion. It's still the most important thing because back to what we said, right? You're stealing time. By talking to me, I can cut your time to get more to where I am in life by years, by telling you the mistakes that I made, by telling you the money I spent on things that didn't make sense. They're telling you about the roads I went down that, that, that didn't really serve me. I can give you that if I can really give you years back in your life or add to your experience by doing that. And that's every, any mentor. And with that, like, this is the best way I can equate it, right? Like social media has made it. So we see a lot of these people who are succeeding, whatever they're doing. Yeah. A lot of those people who are doing it are in the one year club, right? They've been only been doing it for a year or two or three, right? And that club is like this. It's, it's a large amount of people in that club, whatever it is, it's crypto, whatever they're trading, they're doing, right? When you get to the five-year club and the 10-year club and the 20 and the 30-year club in those same businesses, that population gets a lot smaller. Right. That's where the real value is. Those are the people who are really succeeding. Like I'm almost in a 20-year club for real estate. I look at the guys in the 30, the 40, the 50-year club. That's where I want to be. That club is very small. So there's still a lot of knowledge that I can gain from people like that. And that guy can still, and I have mentors like that, can save me so much time still in getting to their level. So I think mentorship in anything in life is stealing time again. And it's the best, it's really the most important thing because Hmm. it it helps us avoid mistakes and get to where we want to get faster. Yeah. No, I, I agree. It, it's it's a great way to to live life is to learn from other people's mistakes. Like learning from your mistakes is is great. Learning yeah. from someone else's mistakes is the best. You know, like being able to just say, "Hey, here's somebody that you know I can look at their mistake here and totally avoid that that thing that maybe took them two or three years to dig themselves out of, or or ten years to dig themselves out of." And, uh, you know, I, I love the idea of reaching ahead. So like you're now 20 years in, you're looking at those 40 and 50 year, you know, vets and really going like, how did you, how did you do this? But also you do something that I think, you know, myself, Travis, we talk about all the time, which is also reaching back to the people that are, you know, at the five-year mark or the, the three-year mark and helping pull them up at, at the same time. How do you take time as a as essentially a leader now? How are you taking time to invest in others without it cutting into the value of your time? Like how are you reaching back to people that, you know, and teaching them, educating them without it being something that's just an expense to you? Yes, yeah, so, you know, I think I, I I use it as a tool to serve myself in a way, and this is the way I do it. I really truly believe that we're best served in life and business, whatever is always keeping a beginner's mindset, right? The never getting to becoming too much of an expert. We, we have those blinders on it. And that's kind of what happened to me in the crash. Like I thought I was an expert and I had blinders on and I, and I was not right. And, and so I think by keeping a beginner's mindset and always keeping an open mind to learning new things, I need fresh people around me. I need young driven people around me to keep that going, right? Like to push me to, to expand my mind, to, to learn things every single day. Like I read, I, I do audiobooks, but I read every single day, right? Like it's part of my routine every single day that I have to read at least 30 minutes. But so I feed my mind with things. And the reason I do is because I want to share that with other people. Like mm-hmm. it's part of my thought process. Like I want to do these things so I could mentor people with this information. But at the same time, I'm giving myself a wealth of all this information that now I'm, I'm teaching to other people and they're putting into play to show me that it really works. So I ser- it serves me that way. And that's because I think like I try to think like a beginner, because I try to feed my brain with things to help other people, it makes me a better person every single day. So I think in helping others, which I really enjoy doing in general, but I, I found a way to make myself better by doing it. Yeah. Now, I, b- before we jump into our random run, I want to I want to ask this question because you keep mentioning I wish I could you know learning from those mistakes. There's things that there's things that you teach people that cut their time in half. What's the thing that you've learned in, over the last 20 years that if you could go back to yourself in the beginning and say, hey, don't do this because this is going to royally screw up your trajectory or this is going to, if you do this, it's going to shorten that gap of time. What, what's that piece of advice you'd give to yourself? You know, and I don't, I don't, I don't want to be too general, so I'll try to be a little specific with it. But 
two things that have really saved me in life are, are been consistent routines, which I didn't have when I was younger at all. I think if anything, it's like get a consistent routine, whatever that is, just whatever, whatever it is. Like you don't have to get up at four o'clock in the morning, get up at 10 o'clock in the morning, but have, make that your consistent routine every single day because all the stress and the anxiety and the pressure comes from us being inconsistent and having all these variables. Like I know the first four hours of my day, every single day are exactly the same. I can get up, I can shake the cobwebs off. I can do a lot of meditation. I can exercise. I can do my audio book. And then I can get to work before, like an hour before everybody else gets there and get myself organized. Like it's the same thing every single day, whether there's something bad going on at home, personally at work, whatever it is for the first four hours of my day, it's always the same. I can handle it. I, I can add that to the stack because I know what the rest of the variables are. So I think if I could go back and tell myself every, anything before I was even, before I had kids or before I was 30, I would, I would say, make sure that you have a consistent routine, whatever that's going to be, just stick to it every single day. And that could include, I'm going to go out to midnight every single night, but that's got to be my routine, right? Stick to it every single day. Yeah. That's, that's super valuable. And that's something that, that for me was always hard to understand. And I'm still working on it. You know, like it's, it's, it's tricky, especially like I said, I have a three-year-old. So, uh, you know, I joked with someone earlier today, I said, my morning routine is to survive, you know, when, when they wake up, uh, she gets up so early now, but it's, it's one of those things where, you know, it's kind of like a workout plan. Someone explained it to me like that. They're like, you're going to lose weight consistently on any plan, on any workout plan. Uh, it was, it was actually my wife. Cause she was talking about one of the MLM, you know, weight loss drinks and, okay. and that you mix with your water. And she's like, people are losing weight cause they're just drinking more water. You know, they're consistently drinking more yes. of this water and it, it tastes a little bit better, but she said, if you do anything consistently, you're going to see some results. Like there are better ways to do it for sure. Like there's better ways to diet and things, but she was just like, it's just because they're doing it. They're doing something consistently. It, it's not the $40 a drink a drink that they're oh, chugging every morning. So, I mean, she's so right. It's thousand, a million percent right. Just consistently. Of course she's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah of course. Yeah. But listen, I, I go through the same thing to my wife, believe me, but it, it just... It, just consistency every single day. And, yeah. and it's, you know, and I, and I, I went through it with my wife also. She, um, she was never an exercise person. She's naturally very thin and she never had to exercise. And I always preach that you need to have this. She went through cancer two years ago and she's in remission, she's in recovery. And, but it really, when she came out of it, it gave her kind of a new respect for her health. And she's gotten into this fitness routine now and it really has changed her life in a lot of ways. Like it's made her more confident. It's made her more conscious. It's made her more everything. And she just feels generally better about herself. So because she didn't have to do it, she was not doing it, but it was not making her any better every single day. Like sleeping till 10 o'clock wasn't helping her. You know what I mean? (laughs) This is. So, you know, just I think consistency in anything will make you better. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I, I want to transition us here into the final part of the show. It's just our random round. So it's some quick uh, random questions with some quick answers. First off, can you just tell me what is your morning routine? You kind of gave a glimpse of it, but what does that look like just straight yes. from waking up to, to getting started with the day? I get up at 430 for the first 15 minutes, I try to do nothing, like not look at my phone, not do anything. I'm just kind of in the dark. I try to, I'm just trying to get myself like centered and get myself up. So I, I, I meditate as much as I can. It's not easy for me to meditate, but I meditate as much as I can for the first 15 minutes. Then I clear my email of any overnight emails I got. Cause I want to be, I want to be fresh by 5. am I work out at home a lot or I'm at the gym, but between five and 15, I'm usually into my workout routine, whether I'm going out for a run or I'm at the gym or wherever I am between five and 15, I'm there. And then I'll work out till around six 30, Within my workout, I listen to an audio book every single day. So I'm listening to an audio book. I, I try to um, uh, task stack things so I can do multi things at the same time. So, and then come home, I make myself breakfast, I shower, I get changed, and I'm in the office probably by 7 30, 7 45 to kind of start my day. Gotcha. What's your go to pump up song? Like maybe before you throw on an audio book, what gets you uh, hyped for the day? I would definitely say it's something hip hop related. I grew up kind of in the hip hop culture. So, Wanting pump up song. So I, and it would probably be something Jay-Z or Biggie related. I'm from Brooklyn, but something by Jay-Z or Biggie, one of the two. Anything yeah. we probably usually do, but something like that. My wife gets so mad because I'm always like rocking Biggie <laughs> or like Ice Cube. Ice Cube is like my go-to. And uh, it once it, again, once we had a, a daughter, she's like, you can't play that <laughs> in the morning. So so I got the censored radio version uh, cranking in the morning. but. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what is a profession other than your own that you think would be fun to attempt? I love sports. 
Um, I st I'm still very, um, I don't really watch a lot of TV anymore, but I still will watch sporting games. Um, and then my son's become kind of like a junkie, which I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but like, uh, you know, anything with sports, sports, being a sports agent, being a general manager of a team, working and, and corporately for a team, anything in sports related, I think that I, I would love to do like something within professional sports. I would love to do. Would you want to be like a player or someone like managing a team, like coaching or I would love to be a player. I think that my abilities and my height probably <laughs> stay out of that. So if I could play, yes, but even within a team organization, just being part of it, I think I would love. Right. That's awesome. If you could sit on a park bench with anybody, past or present, living or dead, and talk to them for an hour, who would that be and why? I think it would be Colby Bryant, really, hmm. really like simple answer for me. How I was always liked him. I've become more obsessive with him after, you know, in the last few years, even before he died. We're yeah. at the same age and his mentality and attention to detail. I would love to, I would love to ask him questions about it. Like, I would just love to ask him, like, what made you go work out after a game um, to work on something specific at three o'clock in the morning? You know, like they used to leave the Staples Center open for him with one security guard with no lights on because he wanted to work on things at three, four o'clock in the morning. Like mm. he was so obsessive. So I think I would love to pick his brain about like, you know, what he did, how he did it and, and how it was effective in his life. Yeah, it, it it would be so interesting. And it feels, I mean, obviously it feels like we were shortchanged, you know, like to see what would have, what would have been there, but it, it was interesting. We went down and interviewed Matt Barnes. I, I don't know if the episode dropped just yet. And uh, he talked a lot about that and like the conversations he had with him right before his passing and like how he was putting all of that energy and that mentality into business and really wanted to, he told people, he told him, he's like, I don't want to be remembered as just, you know, the, the, the Mamba, you know, he's like, I want to know, I want to be known for my business life. I want to be known for all of these different things, his books he was writing. And it would have been interesting to see that mentality thrown into the business world and see what would have been, what, what that could have been. I'm jealous that you got to have that conversation first. And secondly, <laughs> I, I agree with you. I feel like we've been so, we were so shortchanged with him. Because I, I, you know, I liked him even more after he's retired. Like I love yeah. that he won an Oscar and I love that he was writing children's books and, yeah. and you know, we would definitely short change a little bit. And that's the most frustrating thing with the whole entire thing. But, um, you know, still just even studying his mentality, I think it'll live on forever. And the, the, it's crazy the amount of people he impacted, you know, yeah. that's what blows my mind every single day, the amount of people he impacted. But yeah, that, that's hands, that, that's an easy question for me. I would love to speak to him. Yeah, Absolutely. What's your favorite way to learn? You mentioned audiobooks. Is that kind of the best method, or do you like books? Do you like podcasts, videos? What's kind of your favorite method? I think that that audiobooks and podcasts have really changed my life, and I can really like confidently say that. Like, I think if, if I would have had those things earlier in life, before the market crash and all that stuff, and I was able to feed my brain with that kind of information every single day, I would be so much better. I would have been so much better off. Like just being able to hear stories, and I listen to your podcast on your podcast. Um, you know, I, there's a few that I listen to, but just be able to hear how these people who have gotten so to such high heights and how normal they are and yeah. how their process is very similar to my process and how they had the same problems. Like you never think that to be the case. You know, when I was young and I was going through it, there was nothing normal about Warren Buffett or Bill Gates or any of these people. They were like, you know, they, they were like super geniuses. And I thought Steve Jobs, there's nothing I could do to equate myself to those people. But when you truly hear their stories through audio books or podcasts or whatever, you're like they're normal guys just like me. They have a special skill, but they had other things that weren't so great about them. And they're just normal. And I can do these things. So I think it's, yeah. it's empowered me in ways that are almost irreplaceable at this point for me. So yeah, audiobooks and podcasts, I think are amazing. Yeah. It's amazing when you humanize people who are like these icons, you know, we, we just had a, we just had a dinner here in Vegas and there was like, there were some heavy hitter business owners and we, they went around the room and like, we were sharing like what problems we had to fix it. And like, it's almost bizarre. Like when you hear somebody who's like got a, you know, seven or eight figure business and they're going like, yeah, my biggest problem is this, or I'm, I need to know how to be a better leader. And you're like, what? <laughs> like, I'm, I would love to have a fraction of the leadership skill that you've already got, but they're always looking to upgrade. You yeah. Know? You hit it on the head. It's humanized. It's how yeah. you know, it's, it's, you know, it's really amazing. I, I, I don't watch a lot of TV, but I did just watch a series I thought was very good. It was called Wall Street. Um, hmm. it, it's, Mark, it's, a, it's on HBO Max. It's the story basically about Mark Wahlberg as an entrepreneur. Yeah. And, yeah. and it started right before the pandemic started. It was like right in the beginning. So his the type of businesses he has, he has gyms and restaurants. Like, the dealerships, yeah. Yeah, they were tanking. Like they were like, like it was a free fall. And you saw him going through it. And I, first of all, I had a whole new respect for him after. But secondly, watching it, I was like, Oh, like I can do a lot of these things. Like he went through the same things every single day. Like I, I felt 
you know, it, it, again, I think it just, it accesses a part of your brain that you can't access without hearing it. Right. No, absolutely. What is something that you're not very good at? <laughs> a lot of, there's a lot of things I'm not good at. I, you know, so I'm not very handy uh, at all. Like, you know, even like putting it together an AirPod, I try very, very hard, but I'm just not, I'm not very good handy that way. And I, I, I've learned that the stuff I'm not good at, that I found, I find ways not to keep myself accountable to those things. Hmm. So um, I wasn't good at scheduling. I found people to keep me accountable in my scheduling. I'm very good at exercise, but I'm not good at dieting. I hired a nutritionist. Hmm. He keeps me accountable every single week. So I, I found people around me at the things I'm deficient at um, to keep me accountable. And I can be impulsive and I know that about myself. So as I've gotten older, I, I've learned how to wait 24, 40 hours a week before I decide on things sometimes instead of just going for it. Yeah. I think I've got myself into trouble a lot of times of being too impulsive. So that's something I'm not good at, but I, I've learned coping skills is the best way. With all my deficiencies, I'm learning coping skills. Mm, yeah, that's really good. Uh, what What is one place where people can connect with you online, follow your story, get to see what you're up to? Uh, my Instagram is best. It's debug. It's D-I-B-U-G. I still, I, I don't, do all the posts, but I give everybody all the contact. I do all the stories. I answer all my DMs. I'm pretty active on there. Um, so that definitely is the best place to connect with me. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me on today's show. I really enjoyed getting to talk with you and I, I think it's gonna be really helpful to people who tune in. So. Yeah, thanks, sir. This is great. It's a great conversation. I appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks so much. That's it for this episode. If you want to connect with Travis and other like-minded people who also listen to the show, then you're going to want to head over to travischapel.com slash group to join his free Facebook group, Podcast to Profit. Travis will see you there. And remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hopefully this is the last time you'll hear this ad, because with Chime checking account features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and getting paid up to two days early with direct deposit, you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade to spend more time listening to your favorite podcasts, or at least grab yourself an extra morning latte this month. Join millions of Chime members who work on their financial progress with fee-free overdraft and no monthly fees. When you find new ways to save, you can reach your financial goals easier and still have the occasional treat. Take more control of your finances and say goodbye to monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com goals 24. That's chime.com goals 24. Chime. Feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA, members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com slash disclosures for details.